0: Welcome to the Behaviour Speak Podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Behaviour Speak Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben. Today, uh, we're we're back in Canada and uh, chatting with uh, an Ontario behavior analyst. uh, And I'm very pleased to have uh, Jessica Bethel on the podcast with me today. Welcome, Jessica.
0: Hi, Ben.
1: Thanks so much for having me with you here today. Super awesome. Super awesome. So we're going to talk about uh, lots of different things today, um, but I I won't uh, spoil it with a summary. We'll we'll just get right into it. So, Jessica, you you work as a behavior analyst in Ontario. Um, So how did you get into the field of behavior analysis? I always like to ask the origin story.
0: Sure. So... Uh, do you want the Cole's notes version or the full version? Because it, it could be long or short.
1: <laughs> I like the full version.
0: Okay, so I actually thought that I wanted to be a physiotherapist for my entire life. Went into health sciences for my undergraduate studies, and uh, in my last year of university, had a bit of a. Little crisis when I realized I didn't want to have to be like doing manual therapy and touching strangers. Mm. So I went for some, uh, they have like career assessments you can do. And uh, the thing that came out was speech and language pathology. So they suggested that I do that. So I went, started volunteering at, at a couple of SLP clinics. And that was the first time I ever had an experience with kids with autism. And I was just so fascinated that I actually from there uh, signed up for or I applied to an autism and behavioral sciences postgraduate program. The SLP was so upset with me. She said, don't do that. She Mm. said, you can go and work in that field without any qualifications. Just become an SLP. You'd be great at it. And I said, no, I think this is what I want to do. And I guess, as they say, the rest is history. But from there, I uh, went to work for a couple of years and then I went back and did my master's in human development and applied psychology and then went back and did the ABA coursework and uh, my BCBA later on. Cool. Where'd you go to school? Uh, a lot of places. <laughs> <Western> <laughs> like Ontario, for the for yeah.
1: the, for the the autism piece, like the sort of the post-grad piece and then your master's.
0: Yeah. So for the post-grad, I went to Mohawk College in Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Um, I did the ABA coursework online through University of North Texas, right? And uh, my master's through the University of Toronto, the Human Development and Applied Psychology program at uh, OISE, so that's the Education School.
1: Gotcha, gotcha, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I've Mm -hmm. heard about the Mohawk program. Is it is that is it pretty pretty uh, comprehensive? Is that like a BCABA sort of centered kind of program, or?
0: Yeah, I would say it's pretty similar. We had some really really excellent professors who I believe are kind of, well, kind of went on or at the time were kind of leaders in the field. So it sounds like the program differed at different colleges at the time, I was probably in one of the, the second year of the program. And we had some really great, really, really great um, professors in that program. So I definitely learned a lot from there. I say to a lot of people that I probably learned more in that one year uh, post-grad program than I learned in my entire four years of undergrad,
1: which is oh, that's amazing.
0: maybe not great, but uh, I, I learned a lot from the program. It was really good and pivotal in kind of shaping my future in the field.
1: Cool. And any any notable names that were there
0: at the time? I was going to name drop. I was. Yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Michelle Turan. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, she was excellent. Sarah Kupfer Schmidt. Um, yes, Ed Mahoney. Um, he is an educator in the Hamilton uh, School Board, and actually, I learned recently that he does some consulting to Autism Ontario, or has over the years. I haven't hmm. our paths haven't crossed, but yeah. So those are a couple of the the Nate, names Nate, of Nate. people that with the program.
1: No, it's a good name drop. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, what are you doing now? Where, where, where are, you, are you? Are you doing clinical work, or like, where do we find you these days?
0: A bit of a combination of things. I worked in uh, the regional autism programs in Ontario for a little while. I moved to the school board. I worked in um, treatment homes with adults. Um, So I've worked in a variety of settings. From the school board, I went back into some kind of private clinical work. I did clinical supervision. I do a little bit of that once in a while, but that's not my primary area of focus right now. Over the last couple of years, I've actually shifted gears a bit. And I've been working within the colleges, within the local colleges, as a professor and thesis advisor. And I also, I guess, my primary job um, right now for the past year and a half has been the director of the uh, OAP provider list. That's the Ontario Autism Program provider list, and that's Mm. at Autism Ontario.
1: And what's... so? without going sort of too deep into it like what what is I, I know we have Aunt Abba which is sort of the Ontario ABA Association and I know there's like that and I interviewed a couple of folks recently from the Ontario Autism Coalition. Uh, what's mm-hmm. what's autism Ontario? What's that about?
0: Yeah, so autism Ontario is really um, supposed to be a an advocacy um, organization mm. for people living on the spectrum, families of individuals on the spectrum. Et so Autism Ontario uh, has the contract for the OAP provider list, but it is expected to move somewhere else. Mm. They also have a variety of contracts with the Ontario government with things like service navigation. So helping families um, get connected with resources in their communities. Um, they do a lot of different learning opportunities, social events, which obviously have been impacted a bit by the pandemic but just a lot of kind of advocacy camps in the summer in some of the regions and things like that. And some adult uh, services as well. Oh, good.
1: Cool. And then what's, what does your role, what's your role? Like what does the director of the OAP provider List do?
0: It's a bit of a mouthful (laughs) (laughs) and it doesn't mean anything to most people, but I actually do. Um, uh, My job is really quite interesting. Hmm. So in Ontario, we have the provincially funded autism program and uh, the program has recently changed. So the program allows families, once they get their funding, um, they have the option of using their funding towards ABA, SLP, OT, Mm. or mental health. And so the provider list is basically a listing service of providers Right now, it only includes ABA professionals. Mm. And the reason for that is because in Ontario, well, I guess in all of Canada right now, um, ABA is not a regulated health profession. So they decided to start with the ABA providers just to make sure that families are receiving, you know, a high quality of um, service and that they're receiving services from people with a minimum of a BCBA not kind of just anyone who's saying that they're doing ABA just to kind of, you know, for public protection.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think we, we have the same.
0: Yeah, the RASP, I believe. Right. We have the
1: RASP, <laughs> in, in, which is the Registry of Autism Service Providers and BZ, but we also have the same sort of um, don't if issue is the right word, but. Uh, we have a lot of, Challenge. We, we don't have any, rec, we don't have any regulations. So we have a lot of yeah. we, anyone with any level of training could call themselves a behavior consultant. Um, and you don't even have to have training in ABA at all. I mean, um, exactly. uh, we have behavior consultants that are, you know, doing well, things that I've never even heard of, um, exactly. and, and, <laughs> as, as their service and that's fine. And they can, and they can get funding. Uh, but then they can't get on the RASP but they can still get funding. So does this does this service provider list, is that for BC, it's just for the kids. It's primarily for the kids that are under six. Is it sort of the yeah. same idea there? So
0: the um, Ontario Autism Program, it now will go up to 18. So it's mm. not just for the early intervention the earlier iterations of the autism programs in Ontario were kind of that early IBI Mm -hmm. that was that age group, but Mm -hmm. now it goes up to age 18. Um, And you're right that (laughs) what you mentioned is one of the challenges. One of the things I always (laughs) say is, you know, your plumber could actually sign one of these these things and just say they're delivering ABA. So this is why we really need a list like the OAP provider list. Um, That's why we need these listing services. That's why we really do need to have kind of a minimum standard And the good news is that in Ontario, by December of 2021, anybody who's providing funded services under the OAP as an ABA clinician, um, they will need to have a minimum of a BCBA to be Mm. able to deliver services that are funded by the government.
1: So there won't be any folks that are sort of, and I don't like, I don't want to use the term because I know that the term itself is, it's got some, um, some, some colonizing components, but Uh, there won't be folks that are essentially allowed to be on the list because they were already there.
0: No, no. So that won't be allowed there. um, There is some element of that right now on the list, but it's only psychologists Mm. who have documented expertise in ABA. And I actually have an advisory panel that helps me to go through all of those applications from psychologists uh, to ensure that Mm. the ABA Experience and expertise that those psychologists have is equivalent to what a BCBA would be required to have. Gotcha. Because, as you know, there is a difference between what you would learn kind of in your general psychology program versus if you're doing kind of more ABA specific coursework. Mm -hmm. So, we do a pretty rigorous, Mm -hmm. like, we manually review every application that comes in. So, the list right now only includes ABA providers, but it's expanding. Um, very soon to include occupational therapists and speech and language pathologists. And then we believe Mm. that over time it may expand further to include the mental health clinicians, which have just been added to the Ontario Autism Program. Oh,
1: interesting. Yeah. Ours is the ABA. We have the SLPs, the OTs, and then I think we also have the physiotherapists as well. Yeah. Uh, So they were allowed,
0: they were allowed for a short time. Um, during Hmm. a bit of a transition but now they've switched it back to just occupational therapy and not physical therapy
1: yeah yeah and then and what i'm curious just uh what sort of defines uh, because i I like that they're allowed to use the funding for this what what sort of defines a mental health clinician
0: so this is a very good question i'm not Sure, yes, it's been publicly released now. Um, oh, sorry, but yeah, it, <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> it has been. Um, so, it actually includes, and don't quote me on this because um, no, I may miss some. I know, yeah, yeah, um, that it includes psychologists, it does include mm-hmm. um, social workers, it also includes psychotherapists, which I wasn't mm. sure if it would include psychotherapists. Mm-hmm. Something really interesting that I only learned recently is that the College of Psychotherapy allows there's nurses and occupational therapists that if they have the correct coursework, and I'm guessing probably an examination, um, they can be members of that college. So I thought that was a really interesting addition to the mental health group. And I'm not entirely sure um, how that will look as it rolls out in the Ontario Autism Program for the mental health clinicians and ensuring that they have the appropriate, you know, skill set background expertise for this particular population. Which kind of leads me to something I didn't mention, but for Mm -hmm. the occupational therapists and um, speech and language pathologists, we are working towards determining some criteria similar to the RASP um, for them to be eligible to join the list, kind of in addition to their um, registration or their professional certification. Because we do want to ensure that all of the providers who are all the clinicians who are providing services under the Ontario Autism Program, we do want to ensure that they have experience working with this population and with some mm-hmm. of the needs of the population as well.
1: And and just sort of one more question. I didn't really think I'd dive too deep into Autism Ontario, but um, but it's, it's really interesting and, and is... Because I, I, I made, I sort of, I, I mean, you know, forget, I made the presumption sort of that, um, you know, there might not be a ton of work to that role, but it sounds like there is. I mean, uh, because it sounds like you do have quite a few folks applying. Yeah. Is that is, is that sort of an ongoing thing? It uh, is. I, yeah.
0: Yeah, there are particular kind of milestones that I'm expected to meet. We have over 300 members on the list right now, and that is oh, wow. um, just ABA providers. So that's all BCBAs. Actually, right now, the criteria for BCBAs is quite high. You need to have at least 3000 hours of experience post-certification. So it's about two years and you need to show that you have supervisory experience and a variety of other things. So it is quite a rigorous process for BCBAs to join the list right now. And the process won't be probably as rigorous for the other professions. But again, it was really just kind of looking at that safety and protection of the Mm -hmm. the um those receiving the service and just trying to really make sure that people are doing um good aba and have the proper training and that the ethics the knowledge of the ethics behind everything too totally
1: yeah and and you've got and you've got you know a a couple grad schools there so you probably they're, they're, they're probably pumping out a lot of you know, um, uh, new, new certificates every year. Yep. And so you, you're probably getting tons of applicants coming in. That, that, that is a big job.
0: Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting because for a while um, when conferences were in person, I started to think I knew everyone because I would say, oh yeah, <laughs> no, I recognize these faces, but now it's really interesting because I don't recognize a lot of the names coming in anymore. And so we definitely are, are doing, I think, a good job um, in Ontario and hopefully across the country at, uh, increasing the number
1: of behavior analysts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's, like you said, there's that many there and I think we have a couple hundred here and, but then uh, the, the numbers do start to dwindle in the prairies, it seems. Um, yeah. um, but, uh, East coast is kind of growing qu- quite quickly too, it looks like. So that's been cool. Neat. ah, Really neat. Um, yeah, it's just interesting, interesting to sort of, for me, kind of just comparing our province to your province and kind of mm-hmm. the different processes that are involved and, uh, uh, like I don't even know who manages our like our list was managed I think by a similar advocacy organization for a lot of years and then I think it, I think it and I don't and someone will someone will comment incorrectly, but uh-huh. I, I think it's now done by the government itself I think the ministry whatever that funds it is now administering the list itself but I'm not sure I, I work mostly sort of in the adults area which doesn't really uh, uh, isn't really related to the rasp so right. I don't get involved as much but we are. We are, uh, you know, at the time of this recording, we are uh, waiting with bated breath for some announcements on some funding changes, um, and mm-hmm. there's been a lot of uh, curiosity, so I'm, I'm sure by the time this, this comes out, uh, those will be announced, and uh, and we'll see how kind of that goes. Apparently, a, a move towards the, some sort of needs-based model um, is, is happening, so it'll be interesting to see what develops there. Yeah,
0: sounds uh, similar. Sounds similar yeah. to what's happening in Ontario. So totally, always lots totally. of lots of news in in this field. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and to the government, and
1: of course, if the government changes to some other party, then uh, then everything changes again exactly. too with that. So so that that's a a good gig for sure. Um, so I I mean you know another thing we were talking about sort of in our in kind of our pre chat is um, um, that you know. I was sort of uh, talking about the the first episode that I did on the podcast with a colleague of mine Danielle, uh, who ha- was sharing kind of her experiences, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a black behavior analyst in BC, and and at the time her perspective was sure she was kind of the only one out there, and also she wasn't uh, she had. Uh, Moved from the from from Trinidad uh, to here, I think maybe twelve years ago or so, and so um, she had uh, you know kind of some of those cultural pieces too of coming from coming from a different land, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and uh, it was quite interesting to sort of hear her experiences, um, uh, not just sort of uh, you know uh, in in terms of kind of. Um, Racism in general, but uh, sort of with, within within our field, kind of as well. And and I was, you know, uh, I guess surprised in, in the moment at the time. And the and I and I will say, you know, I I've learned a lot since that interview. I did that interview, I think, in September of um, twenty twenty, I think. And and I uh, definitely, uh, my perspective has changed. Uh, in massive amounts of ways since then and so going back I probably wouldn't have asked the same questions that I asked then but uh, uh, you know for for the folks that maybe missed uh, the uh, the promo photo for for this episode you were also a a black behavior analyst in Ontario and um, so I was just interested to kind of hear you know what your experience has been like uh, in Ontario and just in general um, as a person of color
0: yeah So I think my experience obviously would be different because I was born and raised in Ontario Mm. um, and all of my education, I mean, except for some online schooling was all kind of Ontario based. Mm. Um, So I didn't really have a lot of experiences. Actually, it's really interesting. I think I had mentioned this to you uh, when we spoke, but it's hard for me to say, I think because our field historically has been so heavily dominated with um, kind of white males in leadership roles and um, running all of the conferences and being the speakers for every single presentation. Uh, This has shifted over the past, I would say, even the last 10 years. But I was saying this to you that I actually never really knew if my experiences were because I was a woman or because I was a person of color, and so part of it could just be that I've never looked at it from that lens. So I can't really say with absolute certainty that anything I've experienced, you know, throughout my career, has been because I'm a person of color. Yeah,
2: fair but enough. the other
0: side of it is that I'm also, I would say, a bit of an overachiever. So I've <laughs> also probably done a lot more to ensure that I've been able to move into the roles that I wanted to be um, in. Mm. And I've done a lot to kind of position myself academically. I've, you know, done years and years. I actually was talking to my son the other day because he thought he, he he was trying to tell me that he knows everything. And I said, let's see how many years of school we've each done. And when I got to 24, I went, oh, my goodness, I was in school for 24 years. And then he's like, maybe I don't know everything. <laughs> and the 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 conversation of him kind of knowing everything that he thought he knew ended pretty quickly. But, um, yeah, so, I you know, I spent a lot of years in school. I've done a lot of um, I really made sure to, as I mentioned to you, work in a lot of different areas in the field, because one of the things that I found with a lot of behavior analysts is that they worked kind of only in, IBI programs or early intervention programs. So their entire knowledge base is, you know, the zero to six age group. But then Mm -hmm. if you go into a different setting, you really struggle. And another thing is that, like, as a parent or as somebody who has access to typically developing children, you also, I think, learn a lot um, and it changes you in terms of your clinical skills and just the way that you relate and understand parents as well so yeah
1: if you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this podcast you'll need to go to cbiconsultants.com and enter the three secret words
2: the first secret word is equity Mm mm-hmm Mhm.
1: Yeah, it's interesting the uh the uh sort of overachiever uh comment because I have heard sort of from from other other uh, uh black behavior analysts in particular uh and I, and I say and I always say black behavior analysts because from my from my personal experience I haven't really come into contact with uh uh black folk that weren't behavior analysts mm-hmm. um uh and so that's, that's so, sort of why i'm always using that phrase but i'm sure this would this this sort of line of thinking i'm getting at would would does not is not limited to behavior analysts but i've heard a few say that they've been sort of um i don't know if, if they were sort of coached or, or raised maybe is the right term because because they're sort of in, in a in a you in know a, in, in kind of a, a white dominated world that they have to be overachievers, yeah, um, and that they have to try harder than you know everyone else to kind of you know. And Danielle kind of alluded to some of this too—that you know, networking and, and making connections was a lot harder for her, and that she had to put in even more effort. You know, she had to, uh, you know, she had to, you know, basically, she had to be an overachiever um, in order to be in order to be recognized, sort of, uh, you know, for qualities that others would not have to try so hard for. Uh, but it sounds like maybe you were an overachiever just because you were an overachiever is that
0: it you know it's it's hard to say it's really yeah. hard to say and um it's interesting because you know in light of kind of i won't i guess it's not recent events anymore but kind of like the george floyd movement where all these things started happening people started having yeah. conversations i started having yeah. conversations with my parents who are actually um also of caribbean descent and moved to canada you know once they were in their early adulthood And the stories that they told me of stuff that they experienced that was just like blatant, like systemic and not even systemic, like racism, but they just dealt with it. They just took it and they said, "Okay, well, we know we're going to have to work this much harder. So we just did it. So it's a really interesting question that you ask, because I can't say, you know, I'm just an overachiever because that's just the way I am. But maybe, you Mm -hmm. know, my parents knew what they were doing and said, we need to teach our children that this is what they need to do to be able to be successful kind of in this country. So it's quite possible that because of their experience, they raised me in that way. As a parent of, you know, two children of color as well, I'm so aware, like, I actually, we've had a lot of good conversations with friends kind of over the past year, friends of different races as well, because they feel like it's a safe space. They can have conversations with us and things that they never even thought of. Like there's so many things that as a parent, I do so differently from um, many of my peers um, Hmm. because I know that I have black kids. So like my kids are going to automatically be expected to, you know, Play basketball or to do whatever. And so I've actually made a decision, or my spouse and I kind of made a decision that we need to make sure that our kids aren't perceived in a certain way. So we've done things like we put them into French school. So my kids are fully bilingual, where academics are a focus. So we've made a lot of decisions that were really based on knowing that our kids will be automatically expected to be not necessarily the smartest kids in the class and Mm. whatever, like there's certain perceptions that are just expected. So we've kind of gone above and beyond. And there's a lot of things that we do just in our parenting, because we know that our kids will have to work harder. So I guess it's no different than probably what my parents did with me. So, you know, kind of going back to your original question of the overachiever piece, it kind of maybe all comes back to breaking down some of those barriers of systemic racism. Like, how did we get to this point where we even have to do this and
2: like, yeah, why certainly. do we have
0: to do it? Why do we have to work that much harder? Like, you know, my kids are no different than anyone else's kids. So, why do I have to do all these extra things as a parent to make sure that my kids can be kind of successful or treated the same way in society? Right.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. You know, and I, I, uh, that's really interesting. And so, I, I think, you know, I think part of that is probably that you, you were encouraged by your family and and you've encouraged your kids to, you know, to, you know, to work hard and, 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 you know, kind of do all these things. But I I think maybe some folks have been told that and told why, like, do you, you, would you, would you actually be telling your kids, you know, sort of, this is why I'm pushing you harder, or are you just sort of setting them up for success and, um, and, uh, and, and not sort of giving them, well, it's because you live in a world where. Yeah things aren't fair?
0: It's a good question because um, I haven't really talked to my kids much about race. They're young, um, but it's only like my parents didn't really talk much to me about it. It's just not something I've done. It's definitely a personal preference. Uh, There's definitely a lot of resources out there. So there's things that I've looked at in terms of starting those conversations with them. It's just like anything else. It's always knowing when it's appropriate and what is appropriate depending on the age of your child to start having those discussions. So, yeah, I just, I don't know the answer to be uh, (laughs) know. But uh, it's mostly because I don't really know. So I just haven't really addressed it with them. But yeah, I guess. It's it's just one of those things. There's not really a right answer and as a parent you just kind of do do the best you can. My mom my mom's famous quote is you didn't come with a with an instruction manual and I'm doing the best I can because I would always say <laughs> why are you doing this? And it's so funny because <laughs> so many times my kids say stuff and I just want to say that to them but I don't want to be, you know, turning into my mom <laughs> so I don't say it but No, 100%, uh, but
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
0: kind of now it seems so wise to me at the time I was like that's so yeah. annoying that you keep saying that but now it's just, <laughs> like kind of the wise
1: that one could ever say. Totally. No, that's a great line.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, because I also think, because the things I've have started to see kind of pop up too in, in, in some of the groups that I'm in is, is, uh, you know, like some uh, really nice new takes on children, children's books, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. when, when it comes to kind of teaching about racism, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and kind of what's happening. And uh, I think those are amazing. I also kind of wonder if there shouldn't be you know, those same kind of resources for the white families, you know, um, yeah. uh, in, in the sense of, um, you know, uh, here, here's why you don't have to try as hard, you know, yeah. um, you know, and, and sort of those pieces, because, you know, I, I know, I, I know I was taught nothing about, uh, you, know, you know, privilege and whatnot. Um, and certainly post George Floyd, I've had some great conversations with my parents and I was kind of happy you know, I I you know, be honest and, and, and mom and dad, if you're listening, forgive me, but I I, <laughs> uh, I I I you know, I sort of half expected, you know, to kind of hear more kind of I guess biased kind of statements from them mm-hmm. um in in these conversations. Mostly because other folks, you know, other white folks that are kind of in their in their age demographic that I've interacted with have had pretty biased and 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 uh, that's that's being nice like. Hardcore racist statements, yeah. um, uh, you know, kind of coming out of their mouth and, you know, cause that's the way it was, you know, mm-hmm. as, as, as it goes. And so I was, I was, I was, you know, pleasantly surprised that my parents had a, had a similar sort of perspective to, to, to mine as it was now. Uh, but that said, we weren't really taught anything as kids about it. Um, um, and, uh, so I think that'd be, a that'd be interesting to see if, you know, if, if there's could be some more resources out there for not just, uh, you know, the, the children of people of color, but for the, for, for the oppressors, you know? Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's interesting. What about sort of in, in, in your role or in behavior analyst? I mean, I mean, I think there's, there's, I, I've been, I've been hearing sort of from some of the podcasts and, and you talk about a res, you you shared a resource with me, which we'll probably touch on in a bit. There are in particular for sort of, you know, black kids with autism, there are kind of particular kind of behaviors that we need to be teaching them in particular from sort of a, uh, I guess, from partly from, uh, to be successful, but also from kind of like a safety perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Have you seen any of that kind of happening in, in, in in your work or with your colleagues or.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I haven't really um, only because I guess over the past couple of years I've been doing, very minimal kind of direct clinical work. So I haven't seen much of that. It's not to say it's not out there. But what I would say is, you know, as behavior analysts, we know that the most important thing is to work on socially significant, um, like, uh, sorry, socially significant kind of challenges and things that are important to the family. So I would say um, kind of race and culture aside, what you really need to do is just talk to Kind of the client themselves, talk to their families, talk about what are the things that are important to them and get a good understanding of, you know, what are some of the things that are specific to their cultural group. Something that I had mentioned to you briefly was when you mentioned, sorry, her name is Danielle, I believe, who did the, the previous podcast with you yes. last year. But I, it was funny because we were talking about how our experiences were very different. And something that's so important also is, you know, when you listen to me and you hear about my experience, you listen to Danielle and you hear her experience. What works for Danielle or how Danielle wants to be referred to or whatever could be very different from how I want to be referred to. So at the end of the day, what you want to remember and think about is like, who is your client? Who is your Mm -hmm. clinician? And we did this mental health training recently and the facilitator or the mediator said, treat people how they want to be treated. So she actually did like treat people the way and then it was like blank. And everyone said, treat people the way you want to be treated. And she said, no. So, Mm. you know, part of what we need to do, and it sounds like you're doing a lot of this, it sounds like everyone's doing a lot of this um, by having these conversations with like our parents and safe conversations with like friends who, you know, friends and colleagues is for all of us to just kind of see this as a continuing, continual learning experience and just continue to be open to having the conversations. And there's learning to, be had on both sides something that I didn't mention earlier was when I was talking to my friends about the things that I have to do as a parent I didn't even realize I was doing a lot of these things to like protect my kids and I also I was aware that my friends or that other people didn't have to do this but I didn't even really Mm. realize why I was doing these things until I started to have these Mm. conversations so a lot of these conversations have been learning experiences for everyone and you know this is kind of my like uh, this was supposed to be my big point of this whole conversation. So I'm giving it away right now. <laughs> but really, like treat people the way they want to be treated. And just you really have to look at the individual, which is exactly what we do as behavior analysts, and just really listen yep. and and learn and be committed to continually learning. Because you can't just say, oh, I learned that. Like, look at the conversations you've had with your parents. So they've learned something like 20 years ago, but stuff changes, society has changed. So we just need to be open to having those conversations. You can have differing views, but you just need to be open to having those conversations and continually learning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, that one point you made about sort of, you know, you and Danielle's experiences being completely different, which, you know, makes perfect sense. Um there's a there's a phrase and I'm I, I'm i and I can't I'm, I'm not going to say it right and so maybe you can say it for me um or that that we say for autistic folk that you know no, what is it no autistic folk is the same person is the same as another or something yeah. like that. You've yeah. met
0: one person with autism. You've met one person with autism. So no, yeah, they're the same. So
1: it's exactly kind of
0: the same for everyone.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's what that's what yeah. I was kind of getting at. Is that is that it's funny that we sort of have that phrase just for autism. Yeah. but we don't have it for all these other identi- uh, all these other identities that are out there yeah. you know and uh, and i think that's that uh, uh, that that's kind of your point here is that everyone's an individual
0: yeah everyone's exactly. an individual
1: exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah cool um so i have seen sort of recently that you know there have been there has been a little bit more work and i think it's more recently because of the, since the george floyd sort of sort of uh event um, there has been more work in kind of in the behavior analysis field, you know specifically kind of on either racism or cultural competency or cultural humility or whatever mm-hmm. you know kind of terminology you kind of want to use. Um, and that there's actually been you know even some um, um, you know some actual kind of data kind of collected on some of this stuff. Um, uh, what, what what is what what is the data telling us?
0: Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I think the answer is actually a little bit, maybe a little bit entertaining um, for some, or just maybe food for thought for all of the behavior analysts out there um, listening. So I recently attended a conference, and I'll just give another plug here, but the New Jersey um, ABA, so NJABA, I attended their Mm. conference earlier in the year and they've been doing quite a bit of work on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they've been really um, saving space in their conferences to talk about this. And so I attended a couple of sessions in their annual conference, and they presented some um, some interesting facts. So they said when they looked at training in diversity, um, the author of the study was, I don't entirely know how to say the name, but it looks like Bulio, um, Bulio et al. Et al. And that was in 2019. So they um, interviewed, I guess, 703 BCBAs, or they surveyed them. And their question was on diversity training and practice. So this is really interesting. Just pay attention to the numbers here. So 88% of BCBAs considered training on working with individuals of diverse backgrounds, important to very important. So that was where they rated it. Um, It must have been like a Likert scale or something. So um, important to very important. So that's 88%. Uh, And then their next question or somewhere else in their survey, they said, and now how many BCBAs received any formal training in working with diverse backgrounds in the course of their master's level courses? And 82% received none. So 88% considered it important and also thought that they were like experts in it sorry, I missed that piece. So they thought that they were kind of experts in diversity and all of those pieces, but only 82% had received the training as part of their master's coursework. So um, similar, you know, information has been garnered from um, the BCBA, or sorry, the BACB. Um, There has not been a big focus in terms of some of the coursework um, requirements on in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I know that it has been addressed and it has been talked about for some of the newer the newer versions of the coursework requirements. Sorry, the task list. I was just completely drawing a blank. <laughs> I was embarrassed to not remember the name task list because I really, you know, we've all we all went through that task list like every single day when we were studying and getting ready for our examinations. So um yeah, so it's definitely an area, as I said, like we need to just be focused on continual learning and also not be overconfident in our abilities. It's not to say that everything you learn needs to happen, you know, during the course of your your master's or your formal education. But how do we ensure that we're learning what we need to learn as it relates to cultural diversity, equity and inclusion? And how do we ensure that we're taking this into account in our practice as behavior analysts? So those are kind of some really important questions to ask. And it doesn't seem like enough is being done if 82% of master's level BCBAs receive little to no content in those areas throughout their entire master's level um coursework.
1: The second secret word is culture. That seems near ridiculous. Um so like I I I mean I, I just want to echo it one more time. <laughs> so 88 percent of the beast of this is like 700 and some BCpas 88 um, percent thought they were you know uh, considered you know the the, the, the cultural competence piece uh, to be super important and, and that they were knowledgeable in that area and yet at the same time 82 percent of them never had any training I mean this 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 really sounds like um I mean it sounds like you could sort of pull out cultural competence. And sort of throw in, you know, kind of any sort of, I don't know if soft skill is the right term, but any kind of sort of side skill, you know, and 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 you'd probably get similar results. You know, uh, 88% probably consider them really good at compassionate care, but have never had any training in it or have thought yeah. they were really good at, you know... Um, uh, you know, uh, collaborating with other professionals, but haven't had any training in it. Yeah, and and I think this is a this is a thing in in our field where there's a, a bit of an overconfidence in, in 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 your ability to do things that you haven't had training in.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what they were saying. So in the in that particular talk at the conference, they were saying it really is just a caution about false confidence based on mere exposure to diverse populations. So just because you've you know maybe worked with. An Asian family or worked with these families, it doesn't mean that you're an expert in any of these areas. And it's funny that about the overconfidence piece, because, you know, as part of our ethical obligations, we are really required to ensure that if we're not competent or, or confident in an area, we should be seeking out mentors. But that maybe leads to another point, because where where do we find people mm, to mentor us in yeah. these areas if it's not specific to kind of the behavioral like competencies are kind of the competencies of our actual work but it's more related to kind of like cultural competency mm-hmm. so well especially especially
1: yeah. if it's not something that's sort of specifically required right you know i mm-hmm. mean we're required to take you know these learning ceus we're required to take a bit of ethics a bit of supervision um, and, and you know maybe you could squeeze it under ethics sometimes uh but there's 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 no specific requirement i don't know if you're familiar with um there's another you know with with all the changes in the bacb uh coming up you know sort of next year around international certification um mm-hmm. and there's uh there's a, a few kind of accreditation bodies out there that are sort of trying to You know, forms or developed to kind of meet the needs of 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 folks outside. I know one is the the QABA that's been around for a little bit, and then there's a newer one that kind of got formed, uh, sort of just after that announcement called um, the the IBAO, um, the International Behavior Analyst Organization, and they're currently sort of developing their own um, kind of uh, you know uh, VCS and approved. Educations, education, basically similar sorts of, you know, uh, pieces sort of to, to create a certification. And one piece they added was um, uh, they have they have CEU requirements as well. And they have a they have I believe they have a, a sort of a learning CEU requirement and maybe an ethics CEU requirement. And they have a cultural CEU requirement, which I thought was really okay. cool. So that yeah. sort of is like you, you actually have to learn a bit about, you know, something to do with other cultures um, in order to kind of maintain your credential. And that'd be something cool to see sort of over here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the questions we can ask, and again, this is like just coming back to that conference, but they were asking, can we expect behavior analysts to integrate diversity into their clinical work if they have not been taught explicitly to do so? Mm -hmm. So I think that just Mm. really kind of tied in nicely to what you were just saying. Yeah. Um, So, yeah.
1: Totally. And I was thinking about uh, just in general, like, uh, uh, you know, I've been hearing a lot lately about imposter syndrome uh, in this field and and in other fields as well. And and I know it's, it's a real thing for sure. And I'm not sort of trying to sort of lighten that sort of feeling. But I think. I think there's, there's a, there's a positivity there. Like if you're feeling imposter, this sort of sensation of imposter syndrome, I think that's a good thing Uh, because what that tells Mm -hmm. me is you don't think you know everything Um, and you're worried that you don't know everything and you need to learn more. And so I think if there's folks out there that are feeling that, you know, um, that's great Um, that they go back and learn. Yeah.
0: I would definitely agree with, agree with those, uh, those sentiments.
1: So we're behavior analysts. Uh, there, there, there is some work being done. Uh, I have started to see some papers coming out. I know um, um, uh, uh, behavior analysis and practice had uh, uh, a lot of folks should be familiar with well, the journal itself, but the, the, uh, the special series that, that they're, they're, they put out or are put or have been putting out um, with uh, the they had a guest editor, uh, uh, Denisha Jingles. Um, and they were doing a lot of sort of um, um, uh, racism connected papers and stuff kind of coming out. Um, so there is some stuff kind of starting to happen there what's knowing kind of this is a thing and knowing that you, you've got this 82 percent of us that have never learned anything about this uh where do we start what what do we do as behavior analysts so we can kind of you know I guess become more competent
0: yeah so. I have a couple of steps in mind and then just maybe some larger picture things. So, I would say the first thing is always just ask questions. Mm. So, if you're not sure, I could think back. I'm sure that we all think back to some of our early days in the field and cringe and say, Oh my goodness, why did I do that? (laughs) Um, And think of how you would have done things differently. But one of the biggest things is that I've never really run into any issues or I've never really had any regrets when I've asked questions. Mm. So, I would say, If you're not sure about something, um, make sure that you're kind of in like a safe space to ask the question. Maybe don't do it in the middle of like a school board Mm -hmm. meeting um, with, you know, 15 people in the room. If that becomes a thing again, I don't know, it's not in Ontario right now. But, uh, you know, if you're in a safe space where you can, I would say ask questions. And I think that's probably a really, really good starting point. Um, Assessing your own current competencies, your current cultural competency there's tons of assessment tools out there. I'll share some of them later. One of them that I've done with my journal club and with my colleagues at work was called Wrap Workers. And we'll share the links to these as well. Yeah. But they have a couple of really great cultural um, yeah, cultural humility, uh, cultural competency assessment tools um, and some kind of educational materials as well. There's a lot of other resources out there. I won't say that all of them are equal, but the thing about them is that most of them are self assessments. Mm. So it doesn't really, if anything, it's just going to show you some areas where, you know, you may feel like even if you don't outwardly show that you're, um, you know, biased in certain areas, it may just help you to be more aware of them. Mm-hmm. It may also help you identify some gaps in your own knowledge and help you to identify areas that you should try to learn more about, which actually leads to kind of my next, what can you do as a behavior analyst point, which is educate yourself. So just like what we do as behavior analysts, you do an assessment, and then you see kind of, you know, think you doing like the VB-MAP or the ABLES, if you're working with kids with autism, you do the assessment. Once you do the assessment, you get a baseline, you see like where you're at. And then from there, you identify what skills you need to teach. So it's the same thing for yourself. Mm. Figure out where you're at, assess your current cultural competency, and then educate yourself. The next thing I would say is be okay with not knowing everything along the lines of educating yourself, maybe finding a mentor. And as I mentioned before, this might not be the easiest thing, but something that I'll just draw back on a point that you mentioned earlier. some of the, I know in in Ontario, I was going to say in Ontaba, but that's not a province. In Ontario, <laughs> our our um, association, which I'm actually on the board um, of directors for, which I forgot to mention, I should have mm. plugged that earlier as well. Course, yeah. um, so Ontaba actually has started a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. Mm. So just kind of look out for committees and something that's really important. This has come up, actually, somebody said this to me in the committee at my workplace. They said something that's really important is making sure that the oppressed or marginalized people are not the ones who are required to do all the work. Because mm-hmm. what has been happening over the past year is that people have noticed that there's a need for change. They've come down strong. They said, we need DEI committees. We need all these things. But then it's only the people that are that have experienced Systemic racism and that have been oppressed that are joining these committees. So they're ending up having to do all the work for the change to happen, which is actually making more work for the same people that you're trying to break down the barriers for. Totally. So in my own workplace, one thing that I've really appreciated is the diversity of our cultural diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. Nice. And I would like to see that kind of on a broader scale. Uh, you can be I guess the term is an ally, right? So you can Mm. just show up and be there to learn. And I know that a lot of people feel uncomfortable. They're like, well, I don't want to join the committee because I feel like I'm not going to know what to say and I'm going to say the wrong thing. But if you're not having those conversations, you're not going to know what is the wrong thing. And I don't think if you go into one of those committee meetings, I mean, if you're with the right people, I don't think that everyone's just going to attack you because you're, you know, not of... um, you know, not a member of a marginalized community or something like that, I think that you'll actually see a lot of, um, I won't say appreciation, but I, I I think that people will actually really like the fact that you're there. I've actually found it really, really great just to see the outpouring of like support and questions and concerns and how can I do better? Mm -hmm. Like those questions. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: I I just, just to, to, uh, yeah, I I totally get that. And that's, um, just speaking of the committee piece, I'm, you know, we kind of share a parallel here. I'm also on the BC ABBA board mm-hmm. and I'm also on our DEI committee. And uh, I feel like we have a, a somewhat of a diverse group of folks. Um, I'm not sure that I'm the best person to sort of measure that. But I do find, you know, for the folks out there that, you know, are kind of, you know, maybe feeling like it's not a place for them or they wouldn't know what to say. I'm the I'm you. I am at mm-hmm. these meetings and I often don't know what to say. Uh, I'm often pretty quiet, but I've learned more sort of about you know, well, racism in general um, um, and systemic racism from attending these meetings than any article and any any and any workshop that I've been to. Just listening to sort of people share their you know feeling safe to share their 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 real life raw experiences. And perspectives on kind of on, on on what they're dealing with on a day to day basis has been just mind blowing, and I've been so grateful to sort of be a part of that group just to be able to hear things and and yeah, that is the place. That is one of the places where you can kind of ask those questions because that that was what I was kind of wondering right away was because you you talked about sort of and I think it's a, a, a super important statement that we don't want it. It shouldn't be up to the oppressed groups to do the work.
2: Right.
1: So who are we asking the questions? You know, like who? who you yeah. say I ask questions, but who can I ask if I don't want sort of that that uh, that oppressed group to do the work? Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it has to. I think it has to start somewhere, yeah. right? So I think maybe this is still the early days of of this kind of particular sure wave is. of yeah. awareness, right? Yeah. So I know that you know the answer I give you might not be the answer that someone else gives you because I know that some people feel upset when they're asked questions. Totally. I don't. So it's really about kind of finding a safe space to ask those questions. There's so many, I would say, opportunities like, you know what, maybe you could just go online and like find someone that you could ask the questions to, or maybe you can figure out how to locate that safe person that you can ask. But it's really about just like finding a safe space where you can ask those questions. If you're in a group like um, the DEI committee, you know, in BC, um, maybe just have a one-on-one conversation with someone. If there's someone that you feel like you're maybe connecting with say, Hey, would it be okay if we chat for a bit after, do you have a couple minutes? Can we just like have a phone call and just try to try to get that information. I think you have to ask questions, at least initially, maybe three years from now, things will change and there will be more resources out there and it'll be a part of the education programs and there will be less questions. But I think right now, there isn't really a good way to get a lot of the information mm-hmm. without asking questions. Um, just back on, on my uh, earlier point that I was talking about, one thing that I didn't mention, and I know behavior analysts will love this, is just make sure that you're monitoring your own behavior change. Mm. So if you're doing any of these assessments, if you're assessing like where you're at, don't just do it once. That RAP workers assessment that I did a couple years ago, I did it again with my colleagues in my workplace this year. And I'm planning to do it again, like to be completely transparent. I don't know where I put the initial assessment I did because it was like (laughs) five years ago, (laughs) but it's a really good idea. This is what we do. So why would we not monitor our own behavior change? So if you're going to be doing an assessment on yourself, a self-assessment, if you're going to be doing any of this stuff, why not look at those areas you need to improve and then look at it a year later, look at it six months later and see if you're actually making improvements in those areas and go back and do the assessment again. And keep it, file it well, don't do what I did. Um, And then go back and do it and see if you've made changes. And if you haven't, then, you know, obviously you're not teaching in a way you can learn and you need to find a better way to get that information to make sure you are improving.
1: I love that point. Yeah, I mean, because I would totally be the guy that would only do it once um yeah, yeah let's go back and see where see, see where i've improved or haven't improved and you know maybe, mm-hmm. maybe even graph the data why not hey eh? uh, <laughs> why not <laughs> maybe do a poster why not you know this yeah. is me um yeah yeah <laughs> so that's really cool and and there's and, and and i and there are seems to be a lot of so in terms of kind of educating myself now um i think kind of a kind of a two-part question here and this sort of maybe goes back to the ask questions um I keep thinking, you know, that I need to ask questions of minority groups that are behavior analysts, but this stuff mm-hmm. isn't just about behavior analysis, right? So I can no, ask, that. I can ask anyone anywhere that does anything that's yep. willing to talk to me. And I suppose, and that would really open up the resources, you know, you know, probably a, probably a floodgate of, of options that are out there in terms of kind of getting help and getting questions answered.
0: Exactly, exactly. And um, as it relates to behavior analysis, there is some research. And again, we'll share this in our kind of resource dump. Yeah. I shouldn't use the word dump because I want it to sound really great so that everyone clicks totally, on it. Totally, um, But in our pool of amazing resources that mm-hmm. we're going to share with you, there will be some kind of academic research, mm-hmm. like things that are starting to emerge and we'll share some of that. A lot of mm-hmm. it is US-based, mm-hmm. um, but I know that there is some research starting in Canada, uh, in Ontario specifically, And we can just start to be on the lookout for that. As I mentioned to you, Ben, I don't really know because in Ontario, we've had a very long lockdown, Mm -hmm. uh, which we're kind of coming out of right now. But I haven't really been as exposed to kind of what's going on in terms of like academia and stuff right now. But I know that's something you'll probably talk about in one of your future episodes with other guests. But I know there is some kind of early research happening. So just keep an eye out for. For what's happening, and then if you are somebody that's involved in research, then why not be kind of the voice of that change and just making sure that we are reaching different cultural groups? And also a really big point is making sure that in your research, that your actual, like the subjects of the research represent diverse groups as well. So that's something really important um, to consider, which is actually a struggle for a variety of reasons to get a diverse a diverse set of participants Mm -hmm. a lot of that is again because of barriers of sometimes socioeconomic status it's not so easy to get childcare. you know if you're taking transit it's not as easy to just like drive to somewhere to a center um so there's a lot of barriers even in research but just trying to make sure that you're really just taking all those pieces into into account
1: yeah i've seen some recent workshops kind of on uh uh, and, and again not just in aba I, uh, I mean I think you can find this across the board but for sort of relevance to us in aba and and psychology around sort of the the, the, the term is decolonizing decolonization of um of of research practices and and yeah. sort of kind of going back and and, and and looking at sort of you know the research not not just in our field but in our field and I think this is important yeah we there's a lot of research in our field that you know is, isn't is inclusive like the, the 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 subjects aren't aren't you know don't represent those groups they that, that, that you're referring to um in particular i think there's been a lot of talk about you know um, uh, of late uh, of sort of autistic participation in research and what that looks like and, and, and how we're recruiting autistic folk. And uh, I'm actually going to be interviewing um, someone uh, from the States who's not a behavior analyst. Uh, I think she's more kind of a sociological or anthropologist, but all of her work is, uh, is on, proper autistic participation in research and what that should look like and mm-hmm. And so yeah, there's a, I think there's more of that kind of happening too. but I, I think you bring up a really good point and that if folks are going to start doing that research, let's let's do it the right way. Yeah. So we've been talking about resources. I mean you you shared, you shared with me this amazing uh, Excel document um, um, with a, a bunch of stuff. Can you just tell, tell us a little bit about that and where that came from?
0: Yeah, so I, again, I can't stop kind of singing the praises of this, uh, this conference that I attended. Yeah. And they provided a large variety of resources related to diversity and cultural humility. So the resources include curricula to address diversity and cultural awareness mm. and competence. So there's quite a few resources, like this is a document that's pages and pages. There are all kinds of like journal articles. Um, Also, if you're a professor, so if you're working in any academia, if you're working in colleges or university programs, like we want to make sure that there are courses um, to reflect that. And I know that some of the schools, I'm on a couple of advisory um, panels for a couple of the local colleges as well. And the conversations are starting to happen about the importance of these courses. So there's materials that you could include in kind of the readings for your students. If you're supervising people who are accruing their hours to become eligible to write a certification examination, why not give them? I mean, I've always given kind of my supervisees articles to read. So why mm-hmm. not add in some of the resources from this document as well? But yeah, there, there's kind of a lot, a lot of resources. I don't even want to just pick one because it really just depends on what your area um, of focus and interest and, and expertise is. But yeah, there's quite a variety of resources that I would just urge anybody listening to uh, to take a look at and see if if it's relevant to you in your particular area of practice or just for increasing your knowledge.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just just I'm just looking at this document now, and like for example, in the article sort of section alone, and these are articles. There's a few old ones, but uh, for the most part, they're all written in sort of the last ten years. Um, and there's yep. there's there's over forty different articles just in behavior analysis alone on on sort of cultural diversity and whatnot. These assessment tools I thought were really cool. I had no idea there were so many of these. And there's like how many one, two, three, four. There's like eight, eight or nine assessments in here for kind of assessing yourself or assessing others you there's, there's a bunch of like wonderful kind of webinars available. A lot of them are on kind of the, the behavior live website. If folks aren't familiar with that BehaviorLive.com just has a ton. I think they have over two, almost 200 um, um, different sort of really inexpensive, uh, you know, continuing education webinars, um, which is awesome. And you list a bunch of podcasts and, and you're right. There's, and, and there's actually a, th- a few podcasts that are, you know, entirely Uh, you know, kind of focused on, on the, on that area. Shades of ABAs and beautiful humans are kind of two really notable ones. And I I really enjoy listening to both of those. Uh, And then, and then there's some really great groups too out there for sort of just connecting folks. I mean, I think folk, you know, some folks have probably heard of, uh, of BABA, uh, which is the black applied behavior analyst that was uh, I think formed not that long ago um, that, Re- recently, had a conference uh, in June that was you know, just amazing, um, and uh, and then that ABA task force that kind of formed I think just after the George Floyd sort of thing, and um, uh, and they're and they're doing some really neat things. Um, so lots of fo- lots of areas for folks to network. What one thing I've uh, and we kind of talked about this before. We pressed record. And I, I I, be, I, I would, I would presume that sort of all of these groups uh, are 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 open to folks outside of the U.S. and anyone sort of welcome to join and uh, you know kind of make some of those connections. I think, and I think, I think, and I think, folks have. I think they definitely have members from around the world. I'm wondering, but the, there doesn't really seem to be, at least at this point, and being that Canada is sort of the, you know, essentially the second largest. Um, second largest sort of nation uh, in terms of, you know, numbers of behavior analysts. I don't think we have anything like that to sort of connect folks are, uh, across Canada. Um, I, I know, uh, again, I know I've spoken to a couple of folks that that, that all, all thought they were sort of the only one of their of, of their identity in the province or in, in a city or whatever, and then discovered sort of down the road that there were others. But there was sort of no way to kind of find out except through word of mouth. Is there anything like that here? Why do you think there isn't anything like that here? I don't think there is anything like that here, so why do you think there isn't and 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 what what where might be a good place to start? and I don't know if you know the answers to these questions, but the third secret word is imposter
0: yeah, so that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. Huh. Um, what I can say is that, you know some of the provincial um, associations Mm -hmm. probably are starting to have or starting up their own groups. Um, But as far as I know, there's really nothing on the kind of Canada wide level right now. I think maybe this podcast, maybe this is like a call out for us to start something like this, but, and even just, you know, you and I making this connection if we start to kind of make some of those connections across other provinces, I think this could happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like this is kind of the same as how ABA was like 10, 15 years ago. Every conference I attended, every speaker was from the U.S. And we kind of just looked at the U.S. as like kind of the gold standard for that. But we're seeing a shift. So now when you attend conferences, at least in Ontario, a lot of the speakers are more um, they're presenting actual like Canadian-based data. Yeah. So I think there, it's just a shift. I think we're a little bit later to the game, just like how ABA um, is regulated in, you know, quite a number of states right now. We're moving towards that in some of some of the provinces, or at least I know we're moving toward that in Ontario. Sure. Um, but I think we're just a little bit slower to the game for a lot of things here. So as far as I know, there's nothing right now, but it's not to say that it won't happen. And I think there's a need for it because there really are a lot of differences. There are things that are unique to to Canada that we really we really should have kind of Canada wide um, groups for 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 this type of thing.
1: Totally, you mentioned uh, and it wasn't specifically for behavior analysts, but that there is an actual Canadian autism related. A group that does some information sharing that might be a a place to start what was that
0: yeah so one of the groups that we've um, recently become involved with is called the autism and intellectual disabilities and knowledge exchange it's a bit of a mouthful Mm -hmm. it is based out in bc i'm pretty sure (laughs) (laughs) and so it's uh it's called aid canada okay and they have hubs across um, the country. Mm. So it is funded by the federal government and there's hubs across the country. So even something like that, even though it's not ABA-based at all, it is really geared at the dissemination and production um, and creation of knowledge, resources, um, toolkits, education for families, and not not, not just families, but mm-hmm. for anything related to autism and intellectual disabilities. So. I'm sure there's even a possibility just because that is Canada wide yeah. of some kind of connections, even through aid. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be specific to um, behavioral clinicians, but it could be
2: exactly, um, yeah.
0: a variety of professionals who have an interest in, you know, cultural diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion that mm-hmm. work with this this population.
2: Brilliant. So Brilliant. There's, yeah.
0: there's some ideas out there. We just need to figure out how to, how to put the ideas together and, and uh, kind of hit the ground uh, running and, and doing something with with the knowledge and doing something, realizing that there's areas where there are gaps, just like I said before, for your own personal like development, but just we need to do an assessment also of what is out there right now. There's not that much, but it's starting to get there. And then where do we need to go with it? So I think we've started. Uh, in a lot of the local associations, we've started DEI groups, we have started to kind of raise awareness and, and add space in our conferences, but what more needs to be done? And maybe it is something at more of a kind of Mm -hmm. like national level. So yeah, definitely a great idea. We just have it. We're not there yet. As far as I know.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cool. Well, hopefully someone listening will get the, get, 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 uh, get some ideas as well. Um, and so this, this is cool. I mean, this is exactly kind of what I was hoping, you know, where I was kind of hoping this episode would go. Um, you know, I think uh, we haven't had a lot of conversations about this, you know, from a, the Canadian kind of perspective. Um, and so I, I think this it would be awesome if we could, um, you know, you know, be a catalyst for some, some connection and some change, um, you know, in, in our country. So this is super cool, super cool. Um, I am super grateful for you coming on um, and, and, and really appreciate it. I, I wonder if you would mind, you mentioned uh, earlier when you were going through your sort of list of things that we could do as a behavior analyst and that you said, you know, ask questions, and you said you're you're one of these people that you wouldn't mind if folks ask questions. Um, do, do you think we could share, share your contact info if anyone wanted to reach out and learn some more?
0: Yeah, I can definitely do that. Um, I don't know the best way to contact me, but I could definitely, um, I could definitely share um, my contact info and, uh, and do that.
1: Well, we'll throw that in the show notes and then folks have, you know, kind of want to run things by the That's just another resource for folks because I think right now there just isn't a lot of sort of Canadian resources for this kind of information. Although we're going to share uh, this massive resource from the New Jersey ABBA, which I think we'll really open some doors for some folks yeah th- thanks again for being on the podcast it was super amazing super cool just to kind of talk about all these things and get just some really you know some 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 actionable things we can do particularly in terms of those resources kind of doing some self-assessment on our on, on, I think everyone should go out and pick up one of those self-assessments and, and and get a baseline of where you're at and and uh let us know how you scored in six months yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I just had one, one thing I wanted to say kind of before we, uh, before we close out on totally. this today, but, uh, last summer, you know, I was really kind of just like reeling and just wanted to like protect my kids when the mm. whole George Floyd thing went down. And I was just yeah. really struggling. And, um, I wrote an article in our, um, Autism Matters. We have like a, a newspaper. uh Sorry, not a newspaper. It's a magazine for Autism Ontario. And I wrote an article called "Racism in Canada: uh, Acknowledge, Reflect, and Act." So now I'm plugging myself here, but oh, of course, not yeah. because I really want you to go and read the article. But if you do um, want to read it, you can just search my name and then search the name of the article. So again, it's "Racism in Canada: Acknowledge, Reflect, Act." Um, and I just wanted to kind of end off. I'm I'm someone that really likes to end off with like a quote or something inspirational. So yeah, yeah. I just I just want to share this because. This really uh just kind of uh, resonated with me, so I just wanted to kind of end off on this, but it says for those who have seen the Earth from space, the experience most certainly changes your perspective. The things that we share in our world are far more valuable than those which divide us. So I just kind of wanted to end off with that and just leave that as a bit of food for thought for everyone listening today and uh and yeah, that that's it for me, but I will share my contact info and hope to hear from from some of you and hopefully. In the next little bit, we'll have some kind of Canada-wide um, association, or not association, but some kind of uh, group talking about these issues a little bit more.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Super cool. Uh, great great way to end things. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Uh, just, just super awesome. No
0: problem. Thanks so much. It was really great uh, being here with you today.